Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 372, Hostile Takeover. This show is ad-free due to member support. And as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. And you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Patty, Jennifer, and Sydney for signing up already. If I could interview one figure from this period, I think it would be Queen Edith. That woman had a weird life. She was married off to a king. Then she watched that king try and destroy her family. As thanks, she got stuffed into a nunnery by that same king and then got to watch as her family utterly spanked that king with a pirate-fueled civil war. And her prize for victory was getting pulled out of that nunnery only to be dropped right back in where she started, in the king's bedchambers. I'm not sure how happy poor Edith's life was, but it definitely was interesting. And to make matters worse, the records clearly indicate that Edith was a brilliant political mind. She was likely the most intelligent and shrewd of all of Godwin's kids. But Edith was a woman, and women were a subjugated class in Anglo-Saxon society. So there's only so much she was allowed to do with her significant talents. But even with those limitations, she managed to pull off quite a bit. And English history might have been quite different if Edith hadn't been behind the scenes, diligently working to advance the schemes of her husband, the king. Which meant that Edward, like many kings, didn't truly reign alone. More often than not, right beside him was the queen, working her ass off and getting pretty much no credit. But more often than not, the queen was always right there, helping turn the king's wishes into a reality. And in Edward's case, he really needed the help, because the scribes of the Vita Edwardi paint quite a picture of this man who wore the English crown. And actually, the picture they paint is honestly surprising, because Vitas, like the Vita Edwardi, are fundamentally friendly documents to their subjects. They're the equivalent to the autobiographies that always come out right before an American politician is about to run for president. And as such, they're generally not a place where you can expect to see a whole lot of unvarnished truth, or even outright criticism, even when that criticism is warranted. But this Vita seemed to be torn a bit on how to handle King Edward. On the surface, the scribes writing the Vita describe Edward like the biblical King Solomon. They make sure to tell us how tall and handsome he was, all the kind of stuff you'd expect in a puff piece about King Edward. But pretty quickly, you get a sense that the scribes only had so much to work with. Because once they start getting into the details, a very different picture emerges. For example, they tell us how strong and martial Edward was. But when they get into the details, it's clear that Edward never fought in battle. He left that to the Godwins and his other subordinates. So rather than a warrior king... What we're being told is Edward was a king that was quick to anger and who would threaten war at the drop of a hat, but he wasn't the kind of guy to actually do the fighting himself. Similarly, when the scribes talk about how just and righteous he was, it's undercut by the scribes relating event after event where Edward acts unjustly. There are numerous accounts from Edward's reign of how the king punished various people, even important people, and we're told he often did it without cause. 
As for the king's mercy, we've already spoken about numerous incidents where the king was absolutely merciless. We've also discussed how Edward cruelly mocked efforts to reconcile, was uninterested in testimony regarding someone's innocence, and had no hesitation in ordering the deaths of his own subjects, even when those subjects were innocent. And this tendency towards conflict and cruelty might be the reason behind one of the bits of praise that Edward earns from the scribes. And it's a bit of praise that, against all odds, might be earnest. They praise him, very specifically, for his obsession with hunting, a pursuit that Edward apparently devoted most of his time to. Now, hunting was a well-known pastime for kings, so the fact that Edward hunted isn't all that shocking. But it is strange that the scribes were praising him for it, because the church really wasn't a fan of hunting as a pastime. In fact, canon law specifically prohibited clergy from hunting, because generally the church saw sport hunting as decadent and earthly. And yet here we have the scribes specifically saying that hunting was pretty much the only secular thing that Edward was interested in, and they mention repeatedly how much he loved it. Now, the closest comparison to a comment like this is when the scribes of the Chronicle spoke about William the Conqueror's love of hunting. There, they said, quote, he loved the stags as much as if he were their father, end quote. And that was not a kind comment. The scribes were basically saying, get it together and do your damn job, Will. And here's where it gets even weirder. The scribes of the Vita mention Edward's love of hunting in the section where they're talking about his religious devotion. And I don't think that placement was an accident. I think it was a condemnation. Now granted, we aren't told why the scribes included this detail, nor why it was put in the religious section, or even why it was spoken about approvingly, even though the church was quite clear on the matter of hunting. But the implication is that while hunting isn't in line with what the church approved of, and while the church typically wanted kings to be focused more on matters of guiding their subjects both spiritually and temporally. Maybe it was best, in the case of Edward at least, that he was out there hunting. It might be a venal sin, but at least while he was out in the woods, he wasn't in court starting fights or getting into trouble. At least hunting was a minor sin that could be redeemed at a mass, unlike, for example, ordering the slaughter of his own subjects in a fit of pique. It's hard to see this inclusion in the Vita as anything less than shade. Deft shade, but shade nonetheless. And that shade keeps coming. The Vita describes Edward as generous with the church and religiously devoted. But then, once again, when they get into the details, they seem to undermine their argument. As you read of Edward's life, you learn of things like how Queen Edith was more generous with the church than he was, of how King Edward never made a pilgrimage, even though his brothers-in-law did, of how Tostig was at least as religiously devoted as he was, and it's implied that he was much better than Edward at rooting out evil. And as for any allegations that Edward had religious powers, we're specifically told that Stigand, the Archbishop of Canterbury, doubted that he had any. And this pattern of saying the party line and then undercutting it with details is so consistent that it feels very much like one of those articles where you can tell that a CEO told his editorial staff what they had to write, and then that staff engaged in a plausibly deniable rebellion. And it goes on. 
When the Vita praised Edward for passing good laws and handling the business of court, the picture gets a little messy once we get into the details. Because these details give us the context to see that Edward was an emotional and hot-headed man. As king, he often made missteps in his rule. And in particular, he had a bad habit of listening to the worst and most self-serving advisors in his court. And the scribes tell us that that habit would sometimes imperil the kingdom. I suspect that what they're talking about here is Edward's relationship with Robert of Jumiege and other Norman agitators. But even if they're talking about Godwin, the picture that they're painting here is ultimately a far cry from King Solomon, who the scribes are clearly trying to compare Edward to at the opening of the Vita. And the more details we get, the more Edward is sounding like his father, Athelred Unred. We're also giving clear indications from these descriptions that the court relied not on Edward's counsel, but on Queen Edith's. The Vida loved Queen Edith. The scribes describe her as, quote, a woman fit to be placed before all noble, royal, or imperial ladies as a model of virtue and integrity, both in religious and worldly affairs, end quote. And that worldly affairs part is important because it's echoing what we've seen in other records, that Edith was a sharp political mind and made of stern stuff just like her father, and quite possibly just like her mother too, as she was of Scandinavian royalty, though we know less about her. And the implication in the record is that often it was Edith who guided the English court through these troubling years, influencing matters whenever and however she could, on matters both big and small. She had her hands everywhere. For example, we're even told that it was Edith who convinced Edward to respect English customs, and managed to at least get him to dress in a way befitting of an English king. Apparently, without Edith, Edward would have rolled into court wearing the 11th century version of cargo shorts and a Nickelback t-shirt. And given how Edward trended towards rash and emotional decisions, we can guess who it was behind some of the more level-headed and conciliatory acts that occurred during this era. But at the same time, we do have indications that Edward resented his wife's influence even as she worked to save him from himself. We also have hints that Edward was just kind of shitty regarding women in general. The Vita tells us that Edward was condescending towards women, which the scribes saw as a positive thing, pretty much on the same level as being merciful to the poor. And while talking down to women might have sounded great to a celibate man sitting in a monastery writing the Vita, you have to imagine that Edward's condescension probably felt very different to the women who knew him and dealt with him in court, especially when some of those women were apparently the only thing holding the kingdom together, especially when one of those women was his wife. But as frustrating as that likely was, I think Edith knew who her husband was and knew how fragile his sense of power was. After all, she would have been witness to the various times when he rashly threatened war or impulsively stripped powerful nobles of their lands. So I think Edith wisely avoided pushing the issue with Edward and instead played into his ego. Because the Vita also tells us that Edith took a unique approach to sitting at official functions. We're told that with the exception of eating at table or attending mass, whenever a seat was provided for Edith, the queen would, instead, sit at Edward's feet. 
She would only take a chair if, and only if, Edward asked her to. Now, the scribes spoke of this as an indication of Edith's incredible modesty. But I suspect the more likely motivation here was that Edith was intelligent. And she realized that her husband turned vicious when he felt his power was threatened. And because Edith was a Godwin, and she was kind of a better ruler than Edward, her very presence was a threat to Edward's power. So she was probably trying to hand him some symbolic victories here. Furthermore, there was the issue of an heir. As we've discussed in previous episodes, we don't know why Edward failed to produce an heir. The only thing we can be relatively certain of is that this wasn't a religious vow of chastity, since no contemporary records indicate anything even remotely close to that. But beyond that, we can't know for certain what the issue was. I have posited multiple possibilities and tried to give each one a fair shake. Maybe they were trying, but there were fertility issues. Maybe there was a political freeze-out by Edward. Maybe there was something else in play. It really is hard to know what was going on because the contemporary writers don't discuss it. But regardless of the cause behind it, given the culture of the time, Edith would have shouldered the sole blame for their childlessness, both in public and also at home. And if we can trust the account of the French monk Harriolf, Queen Edith was becoming increasingly sensitive to rejection. Apparently, this was such a sore spot that when an abbot came to visit her in court, it became a minor diplomatic issue. We're told that the queen offered Abbot Gervin a kiss of greeting, and in response, the abbot withdrew in horror. The queen reacted angrily to this, and in response, she withheld the gifts that she'd intended to present to him. Now later, she and the monk did reconcile after she cooled down, but assuming that that account is accurate it might give us a small window into the situation that Edith was in. And it might give us a glimpse into the hurt that she was carrying within her. Because given what was at stake, that was an extreme and uncharacteristic breach of decorum for Edith. But it's also an understandable one when it comes from someone who feels rejected and judged at every turn. And so Harriolf, like the Vita, paints quite a picture of the life of the royals. And here's the thing, I'm inclined to believe all of it. It fits with everything else we know about Edward, and it also fits with the contemporary records of his reign. All the stories of his early life, all the stories of the trauma he dealt with, of being repeatedly used and then discarded by his own mother, all the tales of loss, of rejection, of abandonment, everything we've been told about how his childhood was filled with people seeking to get something out of him. And then once he was in power, even more people were seeking to get things out of him. We're consistently given the picture of a man who was likely damaged at his core. And this could well explain why he was so prone to lash out at the people closest to him. It might also explain the stories of how the king would buckle under the influence of someone and then, at some later point, snap and fly off the handle and then retaliate against the very person he was following devotedly only a few moments ago. Everything here hints at a cohesive picture of issues that aren't uncommon to people and leaders that we have today. Edward, it seems, wasn't a stupid man, but he doesn't appear to have been brilliant either. He wasn't completely incompetent, but he wasn't necessarily good at his job. 
He wasn't feckless like his father or completely dominated by court favorites, but at the same time, he doesn't appear to have had a clear ideological belief structure or a political strategy that guided his behavior. Instead, looking at Edward, we're given the picture of a man whose eye wasn't ever really on the horizon. It was on what was directly in front of him. And when what was in front of him made him feel threatened, he lashed out to destroy it. Taking all together, the Vita and the contemporary documents paint a picture that looks nothing like the myth that we have of a sexless monk-like man who is focused on the next realm. Instead, they paint a picture of a man who, if he lived today, probably would have spent most of his days on gaming forums wearing a fedora. In the end, Edward appears to have been a mediocre man who was rather myopic in his goals and who chased after the trappings of masculinity which defined his culture, flawed as they were. And ultimately, he lacked the temperance and the courage necessary to truly follow through on those trappings. This is a man who could be manipulated, who lacked an internal ideology, and who, when pressed, was just an absolutely vicious little shit who was focused entirely on whatever his own needs were at that exact moment. I think if we could pick one trait that defined Edward, we could sympathetically call it an instinct for survival. A short-term instinct, essentially the political version of fight or flight, but an instinct for survival nonetheless. And this instinct did allow him to stay in power, you know, once it was given to him. Though, in many ways, it seems the effectiveness of his court had less to do with Edward and much more to do with his formidable wife. However, in the early to mid-1050s, all of that was changing. Following the Nada Civil War, once Queen Edith was pulled out of that nunnery and reinstated, she began to refocus her efforts. She no longer was working for the king, and instead, she was working towards the advancement of her brothers. And could you blame her? F*** this guy. And this soft abandonment by Edith was likely a catastrophe for Edward. Because whether or not he recognized it, his wife was an incredible asset. And now, rather than supporting him, she was working to ensure that the real power in the kingdom were the Godwins, not this fail son of Athelred Unred. And that couldn't have occurred at a worse time for the king. Because early in 1055, mere months after his expedition into Scotland, Earl Seward of Northumbria died. Now, contemporary records don't tell us how he died, but later accounts claim that he caught dysentery while on campaign. And that is plausible. Now, as you might remember, Seward had lost his only adult son on that same campaign. And that meant that when he died, his only heir was Waltheof, who everyone agreed was way too young to rule over the notoriously rebellious and bloodthirsty region of Northumbria. Which meant that the crown had a decision to make. Kind of. I mean, with the death of Seward, there were now only two remaining power blocks in England, and neither of them were King Edward. First, you had the Godwins, who need no introduction at this point, and then you had the family of Earl Leofric of Mercia. And they held Mercia, and through Leofric's son Elfgar, East Anglia. Now, Elfgar appears to have wanted Northumbria for himself, and on the surface, that actually might have seemed like a pretty good arrangement for everyone. 
Elfgar would claim Northumbria, and then the Godwins can insist that he relinquish East Anglia, which would mean that East Anglia could then be given to Tostig, Harold Godwinson's brother. And in doing this, the Godwins would then consolidate their power in the south, break the bulwark of royalists that held the Midlands, and Tostig would finally get the earldom that he was supposed to have inherited in the first place, which might finally put an end to all those dirty looks that Harold was getting from his younger brother. It all seems like the obvious choice, right? Wrong. There's one small problem with that. Northumbria was ridiculously powerful, both militarily and economically. If you could govern that region, which, granted, was a big if, but if you could govern that region, your house would wield absurd amounts of power in the kingdom. Which meant that if Leofric got his hands on Northumbria, he'd be able to rival the Godwins. And that simply would not do. And perhaps if Queen Edith was still focused on the preservation of Edward's power, this whole thing might have gone differently. But actions have consequences, and maybe he shouldn't have chucked her into that nunnery. Because now, Queen Edith and Edward's own chief counselor, Harold Godwinson, were united. And so, a council was called to decide the matter. And we're told that through the influence of Harold and Edith, it was determined that Northumbria would go to Tostig. Though, in all fairness, I'm really not sure where else it would go. I mean, Earl Elfgar of East Anglia clearly did want Northumbria. But here's the thing about Elfgar. For the most part, Elfgar's only claim to fame was that he was the son of a mythical milf. And that's rough, because Elfgar was an interesting noble. He's actually my favorite kind of noble. Because Elfgar was cut from the same cloth as Swain Godwinson. The records indicate that Elfgar was a wild man. And this wasn't just a phase. Elfgar wasn't young. He was middle-aged. And yet he was still imprudent, rash, impulsive, and often beefing with someone. He was just a glorious mess of a person. And at his age, it was clear this is just who Elfgar was. And as such, he's exactly the kind of guy that I like to talk about in the show but also exactly the kind of person that you don't want ruling over Northumbria. And honestly, it's hard to imagine that Edward would have been willing to go against his wife and his chief counselor to install the situation in one of the most powerful earldoms in England. Especially since Earl Leofric was getting pretty old at this point, and when he died, this same hot mess of a son was due to inherit Mercia which would mean that like half the kingdom would be in his hands. And that was a problem that no one wanted. And so Tostig was installed as the Earl of Northumbria. And that meant that the Godwins, who were already staggeringly powerful, were now absolutely supreme in the kingdom. Adding to that power at around the same time, King Edward decided to take one of Earl Elfgar's shires, Norfolk, and give it to one of Harold Godwinson's younger brothers, Girth. Yeah, his name is Girth. But as consolation prizes for terrible names go, Norfolk is a pretty good one. And so now we have Tostig ruling over Northumbria, and Girth ruling over Norfolk. And as for Earl Elfgar of East Anglia, who had just had some of his lands taken from him and given to the Godwins, well, he did something but we're not told specifically what that something was. 
Now, the Vita does claim that he'd been involved in a beef with Tostig Godwinson, which honestly seems entirely on brand for the pair of them. But after he was passed over, it seems like Elfgar went full Elfgar. Because all of a sudden, version E of the Chronicle tells us that Elfgar, son of Leofric, was a traitor to the king and to all the people of England. So what did Elfgar do? Well, we aren't told in the Chronicle, but historian Frank Barlow points out that Elfgar had been obviously working to advance his own claim on Northumbria, which was in opposition to Queen Edith and Earl Harold's desires. And to be honest, Elfgar's opposition to the Queen's faction and his reputation as a wild man might have been enough to turn court against him at this point in history. Because consider who the most powerful figures in court were at this point. Edward's loyalists were largely gone. And let's be honest, they weren't all that impressive even back in the day. I mean, they'd even failed to stop the Godwins and their pirate fleet. And now they were a pale reflection of what they once were. Seward was dead. Elfgar was on trial. And sure, there were some minor lords, but for the most part, the only man left standing was Earl Leofric of Mercia. And he was old and simply didn't have the power and influence that he'd enjoyed in his earlier years. Every other powerful figure, including even the Archbishop of Canterbury, were part of the Godwin's faction. And so Edward and his court turned on Elfgar seized his lands, and declared him an outlaw. It was a ruthless action, and one that several versions of the Chronicle were not happy with. In fact, version C of the Chronicle, which is openly hostile to the Godwins, says that Elfgar was completely innocent of everything, implying that Edward and the Godwins had just conspired against him entirely. So version C was mad. Version D of the Chronicle, on the other hand, sounds a bit like a guy trying to back up his buddy after they've been 86 at the bar. Because Version D claims that Elfgar had hardly committed any wrongdoing. Like, come on, man, we were just having a good night. Is this all that necessary? But regardless of what Elfgar did or didn't do, he was out. And as he fled into exile, the whole of East Anglia was given to Girth. So, imagine you're Elfgar, the son of a Mercian Earl, a former Earl of East Anglia yourself, and a man who's known for making rash, impulsive decisions when you're beefing with someone. What would you do? That's right, you'd go to Ireland and get some pirates. It's f***ing on. <laughs>